Welcome to The Fundamentals, a podcast focused on the incredible research and researchers here at Michigan Medicine. I'm your host, Kelly Malcolm. And I'm Jordan Gobig. This week, we dive into a topic that I could not know less about, artificial intelligence. Our guest has such a unique perspective on the topic, and I think he tempered a lot of unknown feelings that I had about it. This is one of those topics with a lot of buzz currently, and people are definitely grappling with how to use data to improve our lives. There are so many cool things happening in the e-health space, but a recent Michigan Medicine article about an artificial placenta stopped me in my Twitter scrolling. The development of this has already been happening by Michigan scientists hoping to improve outcomes for premature newborns. The research team developed a special coating that prevents clotting without thinning the blood, and it's shown significant progress in the lab. And a study that stuck out to me is also about AI. Our researchers developed a tool that can predict the genetics of a cancerous brain tumor in under 90 seconds, which can help doctors make decisions about treatment. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, it really is. As usual, we'll provide links to the full articles and info about our featured guest in the show notes. Now let's get on to our guest. Today's guest is Dr. Jeffrey Siwo, a research assistant professor in the University of Michigan Medical School's Department of Internal Medicine and research associate at the Michigan Center for Global Health Equity. His research focuses on accelerated and equitable innovation using emerging computational technologies, such as artificial intelligence, programmable biotechnologies such as CRISPR systems, and frameworks for scientific discovery at a global scale such as open innovation challenges. He is a co-founder of Anza Biotechnologies, a startup focused on accelerating discovery and sustainable manufacturing of therapeutics. Previously, he was a research assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame, lead researcher at IBM Research Africa, and a co-founder of Helix Nanotechnologies, a DNA nanotechnology company. His work has been featured in several media outlets, including CNN, USA Today, Fast Company, Ozzy, and other media outlets. We are so grateful to have you here today. Thank you, Dr. Sewo. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming in today. We're going to jump into some of our questions and dive into the fundamentals. Um, So first, how would you describe information technology? So when we think about information technology, we know uh, that at the center is uh, the use of computers to store uh, information and uh, data. Uh, But in today's world, we think of information technology uh, even more uh, broadly uh, because uh, what information means is uh, is changing. If you look at the future, we see that uh, new technologies will emerge, such as uh, quantum computers. So as we think about information, we should think about uh, not just today, but also the future that is to come. Wonderful. You were very succinct at my big question. <laughs> I appreciate that very much. Um, you really distilled that fundamentally for us, so I appreciate that. Um, so I'm really interested in the intersection between data and health. And I think a lot of people are wondering about how their data will be used to improve their lives um, and just improve our understanding of the world at large. Could you maybe get into how you see data science helping advance basic science and medicine overall? I think data has... uh 
always been a key component of uh, of science. If you look at uh, the scientific method, which is centuries uh, old, at the heart of the scientific method is that we come up with hypotheses, we make uh, observations, and uh, those observations inform how our uh, ideas and views of the world uh, evolve. Uh, so uh, data really is fundamental to all the sciences. In uh, the biological sciences or uh, health sciences uh, broadly, data has a critical role to play in uh, discovery of fundamental biology. Uh, so whether it is to understand the process of uh, disease, what are the underlying mechanisms of a disease, whether it's uh, infectious disease or whether it's uh, uh, a chronic disease like uh, uh, like cancer, we need data to advance our fundamental understanding of disease. Then data also is central, of course, to how we develop solutions. So solutions can be in terms of uh, therapeutics. So in drug discovery, data can help us to come up with uh, new drugs uh, for very specific diseases. But of course, data is the first type because we have to integrate uh, data with other technologies. So for instance, we can use uh, statistics, we can use machine learning or artificial intelligence and other kinds of, uh, uh, of approaches. And then of course, data can help us to design new vaccines uh, rapidly. So the faster we can collect the data, the faster we can also come up with new therapeutics and uh, vaccines. We can also predict the risk of disease uh, so that we can detect disease early. So I see data as a very important all of these areas in uh, fundamental uh, biology. Yeah, I think I saw a recent story about how artificial intelligence was able to predict a woman's breast cancer four years before it actually developed. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, before, so we are going to dive a little bit more into this topic soon, but um, I know that you have had a non-traditional path in your educational experiences, um, and I'm just really curious to hear a little bit more about you and where your passion for artificial intelligence comes from. Yeah, so to look back where this passion comes from, you know, when uh, I was just in uh, about uh, eighth grade, my teacher was defining what uh, cancer is as uncontrolled uh, growth. And that surprised me because a lot of people talk negatively about cancer. So I thought, why should uncontrolled growth be dangerous? Uh, and I questioned that I, and I thought maybe my teacher uh, is wrong. Uh, <laughs> so I went on uh, that day, I still remember, uh, I went on to try and read about cancer in the dictionary. Then I found the same definition. I went into like a medical book that my dad had. Uh, I found the same definition uh, again. And that really amazed me and I quickly began to learn that uh, to understand cancer, one needs to understand multiple areas of biology. Uh, so we need to understand from cell division, which is uh, at the center of how cancer uh, emerges. We have to understand how single cells interact uh, to form tissues and organs. We have to understand how growth and development uh, happens, and we have to understand immune system. And, you know, today one of the most uh, promising avenues for dealing with cancer has to do with immunotherapies, uh, which are based on the fact that the immune system can be very powerful in uh, attacking uh, cancer. So anyway, so that, that really drove my passion for biology. And uh, uh, because of that, my view of biology has always been like uh, a journey. And I found biology to be, uh, to be very complex. That when we think about disease, we need to think about any single disease in the context of multiple diseases and in the context of the complexity of biology. 
And to do this, no single approach can, can work well. Uh, and I think this is where artificial intelligence uh, comes in and where my, uh, my interest developed. And uh, maybe just to add on that, because this is something that I'm really passionate about, you know, when uh, I was just in my second year of, uh, uh, of college, undergraduate studies in Kenya, and uh, I had this idea that uh, within our human uh, genome, there are uh, virus-like material that can interact with, uh, with HIV. And I wanted to test this idea. I didn't have a lab. And uh, I talked to the professor I was working with, uh, and he said, it's a brilliant idea, but we can't, we can't do it. So I thought, what if I went to a, com- a computer uh, and test this idea? And I didn't even own a computer, but I went to a cyber cafe, uh, we still have those in many places in Africa uh, where I could spend a uh, dollar an hour to browse the, the internet, as we used to call it. But when I went there, I used to analyze DNA on the internet. Already the human genome was available in 2003 uh, on the web. There were tens of thousands of HIV sequences, actually, already sequenced by uh, the Los Alamos National Laboratory here in uh, the U.S. And I used that data uh, to test this uh, 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 this idea, but this really taught me that when you take very complex uh, problems in biology, convert them into data problems, then you can solve them at the speed of uh, computation. And so I see artificial intelligence as one of the tools in this process of converting uh, human problems into into data or information problems, and that allows us to you know solve these problems. Uh, at uh, a very rapid scale, and that is where I see AI uh, coming in. I love that. I love your story of being so passionate about biology in eighth grade. Like, I, I hope my future eighth grader has that sort of drive when they hear something in school and that, you know, you weaved it all the way into artificial intelligence through college, and now you're doing such incredible work with those sciences here. Well, thank you. Yeah, yes. You've said some really amazing things from just reading some background on you and um, some different stories, but hopefully you can succinctly talk about, you've said some really cool things about the development of the human species and how important um, the advancement of technology has been in the human species advancement. So I'd just love if you could maybe speak on a little bit more of that and talk to us about um, how technology advancements have helped the development of our species. You know, yeah, so that's a great question. I've always wondered, uh, you know, today scientists tend not to be uh, philosophers. We know that in the history of science, uh, some of the greatest scientists were also great uh, philosophers. So like Aristotle, they were philosophers, right? So I also love philosophy. And I always reflect upon uh, the history of humans, like what makes humans uh, special. And at the heart of it relates to your first question, which was uh, on information. What is, what is information technology? But if we just think about what is information, I think if we go back into, uh, into human history, uh, one of the remarkable things that happens uh, in our history is uh, our ability to develop uh, language. Among our ancestors, when our ancestors re- lived in caves and they would draw uh, art on, uh, on rocks. Uh, the art on rocks allowed one human to pass uh, an idea that they leave behind on a rock. Uh, and that idea would be seen by other humans who were not physically interacting with this one single 
uh, one single human. And I think this is the beginning of technology, uh, the ability of humans to uh, communicate. So beginning with writing on the sand or painting on, on the rocks, and then quickly evolving into printing. Uh, and with the, with the printing, it means that humans were able to share messages across borders. So you could uh, print like a book. Uh, people in your own generation can read the book, but people also in the future generations could read that uh, could read that book. And so this allows ideas to spread uh, to spread widely. But if you go ahead, you see that you know with uh, computers and now the web, uh, what it means that humans can now learn, not just from the present generation, uh, not just from me and you in the same room, but we can learn from those who are thousands of miles away from us. We can learn from those who uh, no longer live here uh, with us. We can learn from all of that, from all of that knowledge. And so I think at the heart of that, beginning from, you know, the rocket, uh, that's information, right? And now being able to take that information and uh, and look at it digitally means that it is even more powerful because more people can, you know, have access to that information and they can also add new ideas onto that. And uh, I think there are two elements. Of course, there's the physical world, right? And there's the world of information, which includes uh, ideas, even before information uh, technology. And so as our physical world and our information world get closer and closer. Tens of thousands of years ago, humans were building, you know, tools that were simple, uh, that were mechanical, right? But even building those tools required some knowledge and skills that humans had. Uh, and now with the digital technologies, uh, we are beginning to bridge that gap uh, of what we do in the physical world and uh, what we do in, uh, in the virtual world. Uh, and I don't want to go into the metaverse, but, you know, this is, <laughs> you can say that in a way, this is the transition, that if we bring those two closer together, then it means we'll be able to uh, solve problems, uh, problems faster. So if uh, we go into the space of health, we can build a digital model uh, of a patient. Uh, this is called a digital twin. And if the digital twin of the patient behaves like the real patient, uh, then it means that we can do experiments in this digital twin, experiments that we can do in the real patient. We can see how this digital patient uh, or a digital version of you would behave if we gave you a certain medication or if we change your diet in a certain way or if you did some certain exercises. We could see how the digital version changes. And so I think this would be uh, very powerful uh, in future. Uh, and perhaps thinking of the metaverse is the beginning of that uh, future. It's exciting. <laughs> and it's incredible if you think about the arc of human history and how far we've come with sharing information and knowledge with each other and then digitizing almost all of human knowledge now. We have things like chat GPT and I got an email about Google Bard. And it's a little bit off-putting, and I think a lot of other people might be scared about this metaverse or this virtual world that they don't really understand, or they might have these fears about computers outstripping humans' ability to process data. I mean, obviously, computers can process data a lot faster than people can, so I think there are, is some trepidation about where we're moving 
into in the virtual space. Um, can you maybe help put my mind at ease a little bit? Do you think there are any dangers to using data to create virtual versions of ourselves? Are, are there any caveats that you have for researchers who are enter, entering this space, especially as it applies to human health or, or things that have like life or death consequences? Yeah, so this is a really important uh, question. So yeah, so I think there are of course like risks that we have to uh, face uh, uh, because you know uh, one of the things with uh, uh, ChatGPT and broadly foundational uh, models, which are AI models that are trained to uh, be able to perform across a wide range of language-based uh, tasks. And as you know, one of the powerful things in our history has been language, right? So if we bring this uh, ability into uh, the technology uh, we build, uh, it could similarly have a huge transformation uh, on our future, just as our own language has had a huge impact uh, on us. So if the tools we build are developing language, then it means uh, that it could have a huge, uh, a huge impact. So I think because of that, we should approach this uh, responsibly. Uh, so I think we need to develop some norms uh, of how to develop these technologies uh, responsibly and uh, ethically and especially in ways that uh, are inclusive. Because one of the challenges we face with the technology we're building today, be it uh, ChatGPT or be it Google Bard, is that these technologies are being trained on uh, data uh, that is available on the web, right? And we know that uh, the, web is not, uh, the web is not an accurate representation uh, of our world. As we sit here today, there are millions of people around the world who have no access to uh, the internet. Uh, their stories are not available uh, on the internet. Uh, even for us who we have access to the internet, we only share certain stories. Certain of our stories are shared on the internet, be it personal stories, the Facebook posts we make, but also be it uh, the research we publish. Uh, scientists don't publish the, the, the experiments that fail. Right. They only publish those that uh, uh, those that work. So I think we need to think responsibly and ask ourselves uh, the technology we are training uh, on this uh, on this data. What are the limitations? We have to understand uh, the limitations in terms of uh, the biases in the data uh, used in uh, in training, and this can be uh, biases in the demographics, so gender, race. We need to ensure that we have a balance of representation in. Uh, in the data. So I think the, the bigger risk will come in uh, what are the biases in the data and uh, what are the biases in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the people building the technology. Uh, so who are the data scientists? Who are the engineers? Do we have an inclusive environment for engineers that come from different uh, backgrounds? Yes, I think it's critical that we we try to innovate responsibly. Uh, and I think there's no one definition of what responsible is. So I think that is where we need to begin. Yeah, I think this is a really good segue, your answer into kind of my next question, which you just mentioned that when we have data, there's also these little demographic pinpoints about these people um, that we need to be considered about. So I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about why it is important to humanize the data and the benefits of doing that. Yes, yeah, so it's really important that we uh, we humanize the data a bit by making the data 
uh, or the solutions we develop to be more understandable to uh, to anyone because the solutions we're trying to develop are are for humans, right? So we need to ensure that we engage uh, uh, other people when we're developing these uh, solutions, be it like an AI system that is trying to uh, diagnose cancer. Uh, we need to ask ourselves what's more important. Do we need to be able to predict uh, uh, with a certain level of accuracy? Because when you say that somebody's risk of cancer is... Uh, let's say 50%. Is it 50% today? Is it tomorrow? Is it in 10 years? Uh, so we need to ask ourselves uh, that. And also we need to, we need to ensure that uh, the framing of our problems to uh, the AI systems is the same as uh, what we really, really intend to solve. Uh, so generally when it comes to, to AI or robotics, there's always this question of, is there like an, an alignment of the goals of the of the machine and the goals of the uh, of the human? So, for instance, you can have a very good AI model that can differentiate between uh, who has who has cancer versus who doesn't have cancer, but it doesn't mean that that AI model is actually picking cancer. Uh, it may just be picking something else in the data mm-hmm. that is associated with. Uh, uh, with the people who had cancer in that uh, in the data set. And so that can be a very big problem when you try to apply that AI in a new context. Uh, so for instance, uh, in academia, there has been cases where an AI tra- system was trained uh, to differentiate between patients with cancer versus those who don't have uh, cancer. It performed very well, but in the end, the researchers found out that the patients who had cancer they came from uh, one hospital facility, and in that whole hospital facility, all the X-ray images had a certain mark in them. Oh! And so the AI learned the presence of the mark and not necessarily how to detect cancer. Right. So really, the output of the machine is only as good as the programmer, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you have to make sure that you're asking the right questions to yeah. get the right answer. Um, yeah, and that can be really hard for uh, for computers, right? Right. Uh, Is that something in your research that you're looking at, is kind of finding those anomalies in the data? Like, no, I'm, I'm just so curious about, like, until I started working with Kelly, and you know I've only been here a few months, like, I didn't, I honestly, uh, like, as a normal person, I didn't realize, like, there's data banks out there, like, where people are collecting data and using it for research. And I didn't realize all the different ways that research and data was being collected. Um, So I guess maybe like even stepping back, like where do you get your data from? Or is it specific projects you're working on? Or are there larger banks that you're pulling from? And how, what are you doing with the data? How are you analyzing it? You know, what are you you using it on cancer related projects um, or other things? I know that was a really big question. I'm just super curious about um, how the data comes to you. Yeah, so let me say first that uh, my approach uh, when it comes to uh, machine learning or uh, AI uh, is uh, not to be purely data-driven. I know that there's a lot of excitement about uh, uh, big data, uh, but I believe that we should combine data with knowledge, that for us to build AI systems that can be trusted in many circumstances, we have to combine data uh, with knowledge. And uh, by data with knowledge, I mean that today when you build AI systems, 
uh, you can feed the AI systems like pictures from the web, right? And then the AI system can learn how to generate fake faces or even like fake movies, right? And I think that shows the promise of purely data-driven uh, approaches. But the weakness it also brings that is that uh, in the virtual world, there are no physical constraints. So, for instance, like in the virtual world, you can create any image you want, right? Even if that image may not make sense. But we know that in the physical world, there are constraints, right? Uh, you know, for instance, that if uh, something is hanging in the air, it will fall down because of gravity, right? That's a physical constraint that you know. If you feed your AI data uh, just from the web, it would not understand something like something like gravity uh, or something like light. And that can actually lead to catastrophe. A good example is in self-driving uh, cars, right? Uh, because self-driving cars, many of them are uh, trained on data that is gathered by uh, a stream of video, uh, or in some cases they use uh, LiDAR, uh, which is a laser-based uh, technology to collect uh, data on uh, objects around uh, around the car, right? But it's not possible to collect data on all possible scenarios mm -hmm. that can happen on uh, on the road. So we have seen Teslas being like uh, involved in some. Uh, uh, accidents, right, when they're in the self-driving uh, mode, in part because the AI system trained just on the static images or video stream fails to understand uh, that, for instance, uh, a police car or an emergency vehicle with uh, the siren going on can still be static. It doesn't mean that the, the car is moving, right? Uh, but the Tesla AI system never saw a video of a police car that was moving with a siren on, and so you end up in this uh, crash. Yeah, so I think fundamentally, I think we should combine AI or data-driven systems uh, with some knowledge-driven system. Really, I like that um, earlier you mentioned getting philosophical, and I think it's I, I think it's needed. It sounds like you know what you're. What you're doing makes it seem a lot less intimidating to me. Again, as somebody with no background in AI, you do you think of like self-driving cars and robots taking over the world, and you see headlines that kind of joke about that. But it's really nice to hear behind the scenes how thoughtful your lab is being about it's. It, we're not just inputting data into a computer and letting it go off into the world. Part of what you're doing is like bringing that human element because without it, as you said, Kelly, it just isn't going to work, and it's not going to solve problems for people and, you know, help human health. It'll probably exacerbate some of the existing yeah. problems <laughs> yeah. we have um, if we're not updating that knowledge. And that's why I don't think people will ever really be replaced. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> that's because what I'm it's a, it's a biological world. We, we're just using this virtual digital tool to understand the biological world. So it's always important to have that element there. So. I really um, I appreciate that, like Jordan said, that we have people who are who are invested in, you know, making sure all of this technology is grounded in knowledge. So the medical school has a bold science research scout program, the idea of which is to identify researchers like yourself who are closer to what some of the new up and coming research areas are and can identify people who are investigating really important 
projects and make a small investment in getting those off the ground. Um, as a scout yourself, what types of projects do you think you'll be looking for and what, um, what are you hoping to see from, from our researchers? Yes, I think the, so the scout program is a really uh, exciting program modeled, modeled after uh, a program by the Hypothesis Fund. Uh, which also funds bold ideas that would typically not get uh, the conventional uh, grants. And I think when I look for ideas, and I should say that I've already funded uh, a project, uh, but I look for ideas that hold uh, promise uh, in terms of changing the way we think about uh, uh, specific areas of, uh, of science or uh, biomedical, uh, biomedical research. And uh, also, I look for ideas that would uh, not typically uh, be funded under normal, uh, you know, normal uh, uh, funding yeah. uh, funding mechanisms. So these ideas tend to be ideas that are, st- are, st- are still very early, uh, early stage, uh, because normally when you apply for conventional grants, you need a lot of uh, preliminary uh, data. And uh, for the Scouts program, we don't need this. Uh, uh, preliminary data is not, uh, is not a requirement. So that allows scientists to bring their wild ideas uh, that they might have been sitting on, uh, but they might have a good reason to think that these ideas uh, hold some pro- promise, uh, either through the hypothesis they, they have or some fundamental understanding of science uh, 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 they have. And I think this is, uh, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's really an exciting uh, program. Since I, I didn't realize you were, have only been here a few months, I'd love to just hear, like, how's it going um, in terms of, you know, getting set up as a researcher at the University of Michigan, like what that experience has been like for you? Yes, it's been an amazing experience because uh, Michigan is a highly uh, collaborative uh, uh, environment. So one of the things I really loved about uh, Michigan is the uh, community and just the diversity of disciplines that are represented uh, I've been able to meet new collaborators. I've also been fortunate to join uh, other groups on uh, on campus. So, for instance, uh, eHale, that is really trying to galvanize diverse disciplines across uh, campus, from engineering to the medical uh, school, to come and work on ways of uh, leveraging AI uh, for advancing uh, human health. Uh, so it's been a really amazing experience. Yeah, I think that's... One of the differentiating features of the University of Michigan is the willingness for people to work together, collaborate, and tackle research questions from various angles, from various disciplines. So I think it's great that you're already engaged in that. Um, And I wanted to bring it back to computational medicine a little bit, computational biology, how do, we, how do we make it more accessible? Because it does sound like we need more diverse voices in this field to make sure that it is resulting in applications that can benefit everyone. So how do we make it more accessible to people in maybe under-resourced areas, other countries, and just people from backgrounds that might not have been, might not have known about the field and might not be drawn to the field as it stands now? Yes, so that is a really important uh, question and one that uh, I really uh, relate to. 
because you know I grew up in uh, an under-resourced uh, uh, setting, and uh, if you go back to the early uh, 2000s, there were very few people with a computer uh, that uh, I knew in uh, in Kenya. Mobile phones were just beginning to come up. Now the everyone has a mobile phone in uh, in Kenya, uh, and so I really relate to this issue of uh, under. Uh, representation and so uh, I would say that the good thing with uh, computational uh, medicine and more broadly computational technologies including AI is that uh, generally they are more uh, they're more scalable uh, so of course at the heart of it why it's scalable is that you know with uh, computers uh, for more than 50 years now we've been on uh, the moose uh, curve Right, so the speed of uh, computing has been uh, accelerating uh, exponentially, and uh, the cost of computing has been dropping uh, down. We've been able to fit more and more uh, transistors, uh, beginning from you know, it used to be the vacuum tubes, <laughs> then transistors, then now silicon chips. It's becoming smaller and smaller, and with that means it means that the cost of computing has reduced dramatically. And in parallel, when it comes to, uh, to biology, actually we've experienced uh, even a large exponential uh, growth. So if you take the case of uh, the human genome sequencing, right? The first human genome was sequenced for more than a billion uh, dollars, uh, took a decade. Today you can sequence a human genome uh, for less than uh, $1,000 or something like that. Uh, so a million-fold reduction in cost of human genome. Uh, sequencing. And as a consequence of that, we have had also an exponential growth of uh, biological data that is freely available uh, today. As I mentioned before, even growing up in a very under-resourced uh, setting and not even owning a computer, because of this magnitude of growth in biological data, I was able to sit in a cyber cafe in Kenya, uh, access this uh, data on the web generated by a laboratory in the US uh, and examining questions that nobody else uh, perhaps in the world had ex examined uh, before. So because of that, I think that the convergence of computing and biology is going to be a democratizing force of who does biomedical uh, research. So to do biomedical research, you used to need to have a lab coat have, you know, a sophisticated lab, right? Uh, but with computational uh, medicine, you can do biology without having without having a lab. You can do it on the computer. That's still important biology uh, you can do on the computer. Eventually, you have to translate it into the lab, right, if you're developing a medication. But even that is undergoing an exponential wave. So if you take the case of DNA uh, sequencing, right, you can uh, analyze DNA on the web, you can order a DNA sequence from the web, you can have it delivered at a lab that you can outsource, right? You can have somebody do for you those experiments without running a lab. And in the future, which is beginning today, you already have uh, robotic laboratories already emerging where you can push this uh, digital information uh, into a robotic lab to go ahead and do the experiments, uh, experiments for you. Uh, and I think because of all of this, 
we are going to have a wider participation. But for us to ensure that it happens in a more responsible way, we need to ensure that our research programs are more uh, are more inclusive. So we need to engage communities in underrepresented uh, uh, groups. And there's a lot of effort now, both uh, from uh, uh, from the go- government agencies as well as uh, uh, from private organizations to ensure that in terms of who gets funded, we can have a diverse community of grant recipients. Uh, we can also do like targeted uh, training where we go to underrepresented communities to uh, bring them together and learn how to use uh, data science in, uh, in biology. Uh, yeah, so I think we have to be more inclusive uh, from the research uh, perspective. I love ending on kind of like uh, a happy thing in a way because, you know, we talked about the some of the scary things about AI and then I couldn't help. I was like, I was smiling at you while you were talking and about how much, you know, technology has advanced things. And we were talking about our kids before we hit record and I'm thinking about how, you know, if one of your kids follows in your footsteps, the the places they can be when they're in eighth grade, you know, when they get to that point because of technology, which is super cool to think about. Yes, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it's super cool and uh, yeah, <laughs> it's an exciting time just in history. And if my son decides he wants to do some DNA <laughs> experiments from yeah. home, I will encourage that. So they probably have done like kits now I for know. like four year olds on how to DNA sequence on their own, which is amazing. Yeah, we we have to do it responsibly. You know, there are already uh, community community bio labs where you can. Uh, uh, even if you're not a scientist, uh, you have this lab in the community. You can just go in there. It's like a makerspace, but for cool. uh, uh, for biology. And anyone can walk in, learn how to uh, extract DNA, learn how to sequence uh, uh, sequence DNA. Uh, and, of course, the DNA sequencing machines themselves, they used to be huge machines, several rooms, right? Yeah. Now you have a DNA machine that can sit on the desktop. And also now you're beginning to have DNA synthesizer that can sit on uh, on your desktop. And so what that means is that you can do discovery on a very small scale, right? And you can manufacture things like uh, RNA. So RNA is a good example because uh, we have seen that in human history, we have never had an RNA vaccine until just two years ago, right? Mm-hmm. With the advancements we have now, there's going to be more democratization uh, of RNA, uh, RNA science. And that means that things like vaccines can be manufactured uh, locally and faster uh, than they have been during the uh, COVID uh, time. That's great. Yeah, that's Lots really of hope for the future. Yes. Okay. So to end, um, this is your kind of, you know, your rock star moment. I'd love to hear if there's any shout outs you want to give to projects or collaborators or any publications, um, any, this is, you know, your time um, to just give us a little bit of information about what you have going on or again, anybody you want to shout out. So I've been very fortunate to uh, work with, uh, uh, with amazing uh, scientists. I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, you know, about, uh, Two years ago, I came to know uh, Dr. Akbar uh, Walji, who is a, a clinician uh, and also a data uh, a data scientist. Uh, and uh, I've been just uh, so fortunate to work with uh, with him because he's given me a different uh, uh, perspective coming from a clinical background. 
of how basic science can have an impact on uh, on human medicine. So as a biologist who is very passionate about fundamental biology, that is where my journey in biology uh, uh, began. I am really uh, excited by one of the projects uh, Akbar and I are collaborating on, uh, still very early stage, but exploring the idea that uh, how can we make uh, the advancements in genomic medicine uh, benefit patients for whom genomic uh, data is not uh, is not available? Because one of the promise, uh, biggest promises of the sequencing of the human genome was that it it would transform human medicine, right? Uh, but we know that that benefit has not reached many patients uh, around the world. Today, if you walk into uh, a lab to get a test, they won't be sequencing your DNA, right? Uh, but you know what they can do in many cases is that they can run some uh, routine uh, laboratory tests, so looking for things like your white blood cell, count your hemoglobin levels, uh, and so forth. Uh, we think that we have a way in which we can link information coming from this very easily accessible data from uh, routine laboratory tests that you can get in many clinics or hospitals around uh, the world, that there are ways we can link that with the latest discoveries coming from the sequencing of hundreds of thousands of genomes uh, across the world. So we are fortunate at Michigan here, we have the uh, Michigan Genomics uh, Initiative that uh, is a biobank of over 70,000 patients in uh, in Michigan who have had their uh, DNA genotyped uh, at several loci. And so how can you use this information and link it with the information that most people when they walk into like a clinic, uh, they can get their blood tested. Uh, and maybe if we combine those two pieces of information, we can develop more accessible uh, uh, models of predict predicting cancer risk. So I'm really excited uh, about that. Yeah, I'm excited to check back in with you. It sounds like... <laughs> I think we'll need a part two with Dr. <laughs> Sewell. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we really appreciate you giving us this insight into the incredible field of computational biology and data science and where it might take us. So it's been super, super fascinating to hear from you. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you, uh, Jordan and Kelly. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, we really appreciate you spending your extra time with us today. We hear and know you're very busy. And again, I just can't wait to check back in and see where your projects are. Well, thank you anytime. Thanks for listening. The Fundamentals is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network and produced by the Michigan Medicine Department of Communication in partnership with the University of Michigan Medical School. Find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.